This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the AC Podcast. Today, it's me and Andy. This hasn't happened in a long time, but it's just the two of us. We'll give Terry a break this week. We're going to talk about this one article that was sent to me by a friend. I don't know if you remember, Andy, but when we were doing this conference in Victoria... Yeah, I remember that. I met Josh, and uh, he has a son who has some significant special needs. And he sent me this article that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. So just so our listeners understand, this is the context of this article. And so let's jump into that. Recently, Quebec's Superior Court uh, rejected some restrictions in assisted dying legislation in Quebec and Canada. There are these two people, their names are Jean Touchon and Nicole Gladou. Uh, one's 15, the other 74. They have this degenerative diseases that they're struggling with. They launched the court challenge back in January because they wanted to access Quebec and Canada's doctor-assisted dying laws. A Quebec Superior Court justice basically said parts of both the federal and provincial laws on medically assisted dying is unconstitutional because they're too restrictive. Because right now, if you want to access medical assistance in dying, or um, as we like to call it, doctor-assisted suicide, if you want to access that, uh, you have to be facing, quote-unquote, foreseeable death. But as uh, this one Quebec Superior Court justice sees it, uh, this is too restrictive. It has to be opened up even more. And so this opinion piece appeared on The Star uh, by Michael Bach, or Michael Back, I don't know how he pronounces his, his last name, but he is a uh, he is managing director of Iris Institute for Research and Development on Inclusion and in Society, and he is raising some concerns about how this basically opens the doors wide open for anybody that's struggling with, say, disability. Well, I I think one of the things that needs to be addressed first, Steve, with regards to uh, what you were saying is how is it, it that it opens up the door? Like, you know, wh- how does this become a slippery slope argument uh, mm-hmm. as we think about this new ruling? How do you see that? Well, let me read an excerpt from the star opinion piece that we were just talking about here. Uh, this article actually mentions a BC man, uh, Sean Taggart. He has ALS and he chose to access medical assistance in dying after being unable to secure funding for the 24-hour care that he needed to live at home in the community and raise his young son. So you can kind of see, well, when he chose Dr. Sister's suicide, Did he freely choose that or was that because he was pressured into it by the system, right? I mean, he wanted to live in his own home, raise his young son in the community that he lived in, but he couldn't secure funding. And that was the reason he 
decided to opt for doctor assisted suicide. So you can kind of see where this might lead, right? What about people that are, for example, struggling with depression? What about people who are... And so that's why uh, there is this concern that this opens the door for people with disabilities to opt for doctor assisted suicide. It seems to me, Steve, like you're actually talking about two separate things there. Uh, with what you brought up right at the end. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that that there's two layers that are happening there. On the one hand, with what you started with, is there's the societal pressures that could be put on a person uh, that might influence them to want to access Dr. Assisted Death. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there seems to be a definition problem. In the original ruling, at least that there was some sort of way of demarcating you know, who qualifies for ending their life. Right. It's somebody who's at the end of life. Whereas now uh, it seems to me that this, this definition is so broad that, you know, anybody could, could qualify. I mean, the reality is, is that we're all dying. That's the, you know, the human problem Mm -hmm. is we're dying. We're not, we're not getting younger, we're getting older. And so, it seems to me that you could argue that any disability, you know, really whether or not that be old age, uh, whether or not that's a physical disability, you know, if you can make the argument that you're suffering, it, it seems to me then that that you would qualify. It's interesting to observe that it went from at the end of life when death is foreseeable. Again, like what does that even mean for your death to be foreseeable? Because you can foresee your death even from, I mean, like I'm almost 40 now, relatively healthy guy, but I can foresee my death. I'm probably going to be dead in the next, you know, 40 years. If I'm lucky, I might live that long, right? So already there is a bit of a problem. So here's something that social conservatives have been kind of warning about for a long time, is that wherever we see Um, euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide introduced, the door opens ever wider, but it never closes. And so it starts with end of life with foreseeable death, but then inevitably there there are going to be people there saying, well, no, I, I want to end my life too, and we need to open it up. So much so that in Holland, I believe it was last year, maybe earlier this year, I'm not exactly sure, a 17-year-old girl got euthanized, basically, because she was, I believe she was sexually uh, molested when she was 11 and then raped when she was 14 or 15 or something like that. So she was struggling with PTSD, uh, all that kind of stuff. And she wanted to end her life. And you know what? Holland actually did it. And so there was a bit of an uproar because, and this is where there's this cognitive dissonance, right? On the one hand, we're granting this young girl, 17-year-old girl, struggling with depression and PTSD and things like that. We're supporting her decision and ending her life. On the other hand, we have suicide prevention hotlines. Talk about cognitive dissonance there. I guess this is one of the reasons why we talk so much about a culture of death here at Apologetics Canada. When you have a society that in many ways, as you were talking about there, Steve, is divided, they're speaking out both sides of their mouth. But one of the questions that I'm often thinking is, as a society, are we putting effort 
into solving issues with disability or has death become the answer to the challenges that people face, right? So, oh, you're suffering, you know, as a society, have, have we, how do we alleviate that suffering or have we just defaulted to the cheap, easy method of, okay, you're suffering, then let's just make death available to you. And one of the challenges that I often think of is, is how are we ever going to deal with those issues if we don't put time, effort, money into solving those? And if our answer is just, well, hey, listen, uh, there's death available for you. Now, that's just the medical side of things, right? Now, we've been talking lately about the suicide epidemic that, you know, we just talked about that in the last podcast. And one of the big issues that's coming out around that is that people need community. People need relationship. And and the, the truth is, is that relationship isn't easy. It's difficult. And especially, you know, loving people who are going through difficult times. And that's one of the dark sides to all of this, isn't it? I mean, it's so much easier to just, you know, you have somebody who's struggling and you, you just push them away and, you know, you make death available for them. And so it's not surprising then, as you had uh, brought up, Stephen, I think this is something that we really need to talk about. It's not surprising then that people with disabilities, particularly here in Canada, do not feel valued. Or safe. Yeah, or, or especially or safe. And I'll never forget when this issue became clear to me. I was at one of our local universities and I was speaking on something from the Human Project. I, I, I think I was speaking on the topic of human value. And at the end of my talk, this girl was assisted coming to talk with me afterwards, and I found out that she was blind, and she was just in tears. And one of the things that she talked to me about was she said, Andy, I feel unwelcome here in Canada. And, and I've heard other people with disabilities saying similar things to me, particularly even my own niece who has cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. When she brought this up to me, she goes, Andy, there's many movies that I've watched in which I just feel completely unwelcome from our society. And why is that? Because more and more our culture views people with a disability as a liability. They, they are a liability on the system. They, they're this financial drain or however you want to look at that in many ways, isn't this just eugenics repackaged? Exactly. Right. And so what's happened then is a society, because we don't value life like we ought to, these people feel undervalued. And Isn't that the great legacy of the Christian worldview? Back in the Greco-Roman days, when a child is born, for example, and if they determine that this child is not going to grow up to be strong for whatever conditions that he or she was born with, then they would just, it, it's called expositio, right? They just abandoned them in the streets. And it was the Christians, the original social justice warriors, right? Yeah, that took those children in. In fact, pagan writers were looking at it going, what is going on here? They're not only taking care of their own, they're taking care of our kids that we we have abandoned. And what I'm seeing is that there is that erosion of those Judeo-Christian values in our Western culture. And we're going more and more back to those kind of Greco-Roman times. It's looking more and more like that. So much for progress. Well, isn't that the problem with our culture, though, is, is what values do we embrace? This is one of the, I think, deep challenges of this issue as well that often doesn't get discussed is 
is you know you guys understand as we've done different speaking engagements and as we've talked with different Canadians across this country, we interact a lot with doctors and nurses. And how many have come and talked to us about their frustration and their concern? Many of them wondering, will I be able to continue to practice medicine in Canada in the future, particularly when we are forcing, we're mandating doctors to participate in these laws? Mm -hmm. I mean, could you imagine, right, a doctor with some 17-year-old that wants to end their life and, and you're being forced to provide that for this individual? And I, I think, isn't this interesting where the doctor's values are being sacrificed for who? Is it for what this, this individual wants or is it what the state is desiring? And if you think about it, too, this is a bit of a tangent, so I probably shouldn't get into it too deeply here. And I think we've talked about this before, too. But when we treat doctors and nurses in that way, ultimately... You know, we're not treating them as persons with their own beliefs and desires and so on and so forth, but we're merely using them as the instruments of the state to carry out the state's mandate to provide these things, right? which is why the conscience rights are so important, because it is an aspect of humanizing these uh, medical professionals. Absolutely. And I think, Steve, this gets back to what you're talking about. There is this dissidence that's taking place where... On the one hand, you know, the state wants to value somebody's rights, you know, even a, this for them, you know, to be able to take their own life. But yet to at the same time, they have to take away the rights of these doctors and nurses that don't want to participate in this. Yeah. And it's not that it's not even that they just don't want to. It's more the case that they have deep ethical convictions telling them, informing them that this is, a, this is wrong. This is not only undesirable, but this is wrong. And that's why they don't want to do it, right? Right. I think that's a good point, Steve, is they are coming at this from religious convictions. So, so one is their conscience, but then on the other hand is their religious convictions as well, mm -hmm. both of which are, are being denied. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, people look at religion in our culture, like it's a fantasy football club kind of thing, right? You just pick a team and you, you know, you root for it, but it's not real. But people misunderstand what religion is fundamentally. It's a take on reality. It is how you view the world and it has all kinds of ethical implications. So it's not just a fantasy football club kind of a thing that you're dealing with here. One of the concerns that I have living here in Canada is we as a culture have very much bought into the idea of a legal culture, if you will. I'm not sure a good way of putting this, but the morality of Canadian culture at large, and, and you can see this in, in other places as well, like the United States and whatnot, but I, I see it very clearly here in Canada that something is wrong if the law tells you it's wrong. Uh, I saw this clearly play out with a friend of mine who works in hospice. Before doctor-assisted death was, was legalized, many of the nurses and doctors that she worked with saw it as, as wrong. As soon as it was legalized, their view changed, and then it was permissible. And so this is one of those areas that concerns me as, as you know, with our, our culture at large, you know, what do they value? Do they just value what the state tells them they should value? 
uh, wh- where are those values coming from, particularly when we think about human value and the value of life? I think that, you know, history tells us that we should be concerned of a culture that gets its values from the state. Mm-hmm. On a related note, when my family moved to Canada, it was a bit of a toss-up between a number of places. We considered going to the United States. We considered going to Australia. So imagine that. Hey, I could have ended up with an Aussie accent. Um, <laughs> that, that in itself would have been amazing. But anyway, we eventually we eventually chose to come to Canada. And one of the reasons was well, many reasons, but one of the reasons was universal health care. In fact, last year, Tavin, my boy, he dislocated his elbow. And so I took him to the hospital um, and they took care of him. And you know what? I walked out of there with him when we were done and we didn't have to worry about a single thing because it was all covered. So I love universal healthcare. There is a dark side to it, though, because what universal healthcare does effectively is that more and more you're putting your healthcare in the hands of the government that holds the resources, right? And so you may remember from a few years ago these two cases coming out of the UK of Alfie Evans and Charlie Gard, where It was the government that told them, no, you may not take your child to get this experimental treatment done, even though countries like Italy and some doctors in the U.S., they were offering to pay the cost to bring the child there. And even Italy was even granting them granting the child citizenship so they could be treated there. But it was ultimately the state uh, who determined what is in the best interest of the child. And so effectively, it was the government that said, no, uh, you will not give him any more treatment. Your, your child will die here. And so that's, that's a bit of a dark side. I, I don't want to sound like I'm fear-mongering, but... Well, I don't think you are, Steve. I mean, play that out a little bit farther, right? Because uh, as a parent, this is one of the things that concerns me with regards to the direction Canada's moving. Take that child and just let that child grow up a bit. Let's imagine that this happened later. Let's imagine that you have a child that struggles with depression. Let's imagine you have a child with a disability. And I could only imagine how difficult that would be. Here you are, a parent in a society that doesn't value life. And so this child feels like a burden to society, feels like a burden on the medical system, and then chooses to end their life. You know, the parent would feel completely helpless in this, especially as we've seen here in Canada, how parental rights continue to be undermined by the state. So that here you have a child that could take their own life and and you as a parent would have absolutely no ability to stop that. Mm -hmm. And that, that is my concern too. Like in a lot of ways, it seems to me like, economics plays a huge part of it, right? I mean, we talk about bodily autonomy and, you know, human rights and all of that stuff, but I I get a little jaded because it it sounds to me like a lot of this is is coming from economic concerns. I mean, you remember when we were talking to a doctor friend of ours out of Toronto, Mm -hmm. and when you guys asked him, you know, like, what, what do you think is happening? Like, are the doctors coming at this with these, uh, you know, economic concerns and all that kind of stuff. And he said, no, I just don't see that there. And, and I figured, okay, I can see that. But what about our politicians, 
right? They're not the ones that are dealing with patients on the ground, so to speak. What they see are numbers. Palliative care costs a lot of money. So much so, like if if you actually look to the states, I mean, their healthcare system is very different, but in a lot of ways, it is the insurance companies that hold a lot of the cars, right? And so there have been cases, I believe there was this one case out of Colorado, I think, where this uh, woman, uh, she basically has to live with an oxygen tank. And when she tried to access more health care, the insurance company basically denied coverage for that. But what they did offer to cover was medical assisted death. Like, we'll, we'll cover the pills to get you killed but we won't cover your uh, health care that you actually need. You know, in the article, one of the things you read that I think is something that I fear those that are making these laws, passing these laws, uh, are not taking into account is um, the court's rulings may reflect entrenched stereotypes that living with a disability is a fate worse than death. The ruling actually undermines equal recognition and dignity for people with disabilities in Canada and it endangers the social rights of Canadians with disabilities. These are stereotypes that unless you have a disability or you have a friend or a relative with a disability, I think it's very difficult for people to see and to experience what they're experiencing and the frustration that they have. And, you know, and and even I think of like a parent of a child with a disability Man, if I was in their shoes, what I would want is a government that's behind me, that is rallying for the sanctity of life, that taking your life isn't isn't an option, but fighting for life is the only option. In some ways, I have a lot of sympathy for those who advocate for access to doctor-assisted suicide because some of them come from this place of compassion, right? Because they see somebody suffering and... They want to see the suffering end. And so sometimes these proponents of Dr. Assisted Suicide will come out quite strongly and say, you are naive. Clearly, you haven't experienced, you know, watching somebody suffer intolerably, so on and so forth. What would you say to that? You know, it's interesting as you and I have talked to different medical doctors about that. One of the things that that I think is is a myth that has to be dispelled is that 99% of the time, doctors, in fact, can deal with the pain that patients are dealing with. That, that that argument from pain, from the doctors I've talked to, they don't see that as a, as a good argument. That, I mean, even in the most difficult of cases, they can, they can even put that person into a coma. That pain isn't the issue. However, I do think that there, there are challenges with technologies that are able to keep people alive. And I've also talked to doctors about this question. It's possible to keep people alive on machines artificially who otherwise, due to natural causes, would die. And I think that those are challenging questions that we have to work through, that there is an appropriate time for death and that there are those times that you need to allow nature to take its course with regards to an individual. So I think that those are challenging, yet I think that we can still work through those with the mindset that we need to fight for life, that ultimately the desire would be to be a culture of life, not a culture of death in which death is the answer instead of life. 
Well, as we come to a conclusion on this, we're going to talk more about these subjects. Sometimes I wonder, you know, does the the podcast, you know, gets pretty political these days, but man, life is getting pretty political these days, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, I mean, we got elections coming around the corner here in Canada, and I know that elections are happening elsewhere or getting ready to happen elsewhere, like in the United States and around the world. And one of the questions that we have to continue to think about as Christians is how can we vote in such a way that supports our Christian values and our, our beliefs in the sanctity of life? As Christians, more and more in the culture in which we find ourselves— I think that we have to really understand our foundation as a Christian, understand our foundation of what it means to have value as a human being and how those values, how they speak to not just as a culture, what we should and shouldn't do, but as an individual, what we should and shouldn't do. And and I believe strongly that this is going to be more important as, as we can, you know, in the future. And I think it's going to be more difficult. These are some difficult questions, you know, that we're dealing with. And I don't want to pretend like people suffering and these disabilities are easy issues to just, you know, dismiss. I think that they're challenging, but I think that they're going to get more challenging, particularly as technology evolves. And I think that we've got to be better grounded in these. And one of the ways to do that is, is as a Christian, we've got to talk through these things more. I think that the church needs to be participating in these conversations at a deeper level. I see it happening in the Catholic church a whole lot more than I'm seeing it happen mm-hmm. in evangelical churches. I, I think uh, a lot of Christians have this bit of an allergic reaction to politics because precisely because they don't want to get partisan. And I can totally appreciate that. And and we're not advocating for any particular party. We're talking about an issue here. Um, it, It would be a wrong way to go about it, though, if we refuse to participate in politics because we're afraid of becoming partisan. I think we, we can uh, vote in a sensible way if we talk about this more. I mean, one thing we don't want to do, I think, is just refuse to talk about politics and religion because then we will never learn how to talk about these issues uh, in a civil way. Well, and I think we were naive in the past and thought that we could uh, just keep you know, the state secular and that, that would solve these issues, you know, you just separation of church and state. And I, what we're learning is that's just <laughs> impossible. The state has a value. It has a worldview that it's operating from. Mm-hmm. So do the individuals that are making up the state. And to think that you don't take your values and your perspectives with you into whether or not that be politics or your place of work or whatever it is. I mean, that's just incredibly naive. Um, you do. Yeah. And this idea of neutrality just does not exist. I mean, even in the case of assisted suicide, you hear all the time about ending the suffering, right? When this person uh, opts for assisted suicide. But that actually only works if you assume something like naturalism where this world is all there is. So you can see already a secular government, which is supposed to be agnostic about life after death, already stands on a naturalistic foundation. So you're absolutely right. Even in this case, there is no neutral ground there. 
Hey, listen, uh, as we wrap up this show, I just want to encourage you that as a Christian, remain convicted in your beliefs, in your values. Uh, I know that that's going to be difficult more and more uh, here in Canada and how, how to live that out, but we need to do that. Uh, we need to continue to uphold a culture of life. We need to value those who are being undervalued. And there are lots of people in our culture that uh, we are unaware of the way that, that they are being devalued. We need to let our Christian worldview inform uh, the way that we see them, the way that we see ourselves, and the kind of policies that we need to be uh, advocating for and desiring is if we're going to see Canada flourish and whatever country you are from. Uh, listen, Canada is not an island unto itself. I know that these things are happening around the world. And the thing that continually goes through my mind is we need to be students of history. We, we need to understand where we've gotten these things right in the past and where we've gotten these things wrong in the past. And, and I guess that concerns me when I see that we are heading in paths that we've already been down before that have been incredibly destructive. And when you see people naively heading in, in those directions. So we want to be informed as we see what's going on and as we participate as citizens in this country. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, ciao.